Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, it's a boy, another royal baby. What will they name it? Donald Trump is reeling. Robert Mueller is going to testify, apparently, May 15th. And the Kentucky Derby winner isn't really a winner. What happened? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Patricia Treble, independent royal reporter, uh, rightroyal.com, and is with us now. Patricia, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. <laughs> a busy day, Scott. I guess it will be. And I, I guess the next big, you know, the first question was when, and then the, I guess the next question is what the name will be. Any idea when we will find that out? I think by precedence, it usually takes about two days. And that would dovetail nicely because we'll get our first peek at the new baby on Wednesday. Um, that is the assumption. It's what Harry said uh, when he was talking to uh, the media today. Um and so I think what they'll do is they'll announce everything at once and get it over with and then just kind of vanish back into the privacy of their home uh, at Frogmore Cottage for a while. So is there a process in regard to the name and the selection? Does it have to get approved or do they already know no. what it is? It's just a case of, uh, you know, they'll tell you when they're ready. They'll tell us when they're ready and there is absolutely no approval. Um, you know, this, this boy is seventh in line to the throne and he will keep falling over time. Um, you know, as, as William and Kate's kids get older, get married, have their own kids, this child would just keep going down. And the luxury that they have that, that, that Harry and Meghan have is that they can pick any name they want. And there have been precedences. So Princess Anne, who is the most traditional of all royals, she surprised everyone when she picked Zara for uh, her daughter's name. Um, so they can really go with anything. Uh, there is no approval. Um, I don't think they're going to go with anything absolutely crazy. So I think Engelbert is out. Bartholomew <laughs> is out. One of the favorites is probably Philip. That's kind of one my kind of sneaking favorite. Um, because, of course, Prince Philip will be 98 in, um, in June, and he's very much, he's very close to Prince Harry. Uh, we always see sort of these traditional names. It appears at times there's only about a half a dozen names that they will really pick either way. <laughs> but um, but for these for for this child, it doesn't matter. What what's the difference between uh, what Will and Kate would have gone through compared to Harry and Meghan? What, would there be a different process there as far as names? There would have been a different process because I mean, especially with with when William and Kate had their first child, because that child automatically, boy or girl, yeah. automatically going to be sovereign. So they have to think about a sovereign's name. And then as the children come, it loosens up. So like their third is Louis. Louis came totally out of blue. Every royal watcher, I had this informal poll on Twitter, and I had everyone pick their first names only. Nobody got it right. Like nobody hmm. picked Louis. Um, so it, it loosens up. The further away you go um, from being, the th being on the throne... Um, you can pick anything. What do you think? What do you want? Uh, what? Uh, well, I guess we know it's not going to be Diana. No, that's for sure. Nope. Uh, what? What happens now? As far as you said, Wednesday, uh, we'll we'll probably get to see the first peak. What What is the process now? And again, it, it's it's quite a bit different, or is it from what Will and Kate went through? It is different because, of course, Kate gave birth in hospital in London, um, and so. Because her children are going to be so close to the throne, there was the big, you know, the press were camped out for days. Um, so they had, you know, they, they showed off their, their children on the step of the hospital as they took the babies home. Not happening this time. The assumption is the way they've kind of crafted the press release that she's likely gave birth at home in a home delivery. Um, and what we're going to do is on Wednesday, a very small amount of media, uh, photographers and camera operators will be allowed to take what are known as pool video, so shared video and still photographs, and then share them with everyone else in the world. Um, and so that way it's very controlled, very private. And so they're not going to face that huge bank of, of cameras. Uh, any royal reaction at this time? Well, you, you've, got a few, you've got a few reactions, um, but I mean, what they're going to basically do is the royals are very discreet about this. They don't, you know, not a lot of huge press releases and stuff like that. They'll doorstop everyone. So like, one of the first big opportunities is that 
on Wednesday, that same day, uh, the grandfather, Prince Charles and Camilla, are off to Germany for a big, big visit. And so I imagine one of the first reactions is going to be, you know, have you seen the new baby? Likely not. Um, they might wait till they get back from Germany. Um, but then you just, you just you find out everyone's happy. I mean, this is, you know, Harry has, has made no secret, and nor has uh, Meghan, that they want to start a family really quickly. I mean, they haven't even hit the first wedding anniversary. Um, and so they're just going to take time and, and be happy. Uh, first interracial baby in monarchs, uh, monarchy's recent history. How big a deal is that? especially for you know for people of color the to show the inclusiveness to show how britain how the monarchy changes and evolves the you know would this have been a big deal a generation or two ago likely now it's barely mentioned um and when it's mentioned it, it, it is talking about the fact that you know the fact that you know the queen has her eighth great-grandchild is is going to be you know a, an interracial child is is the fact that how Times are changing, and the monarchy always changes with the times, and I think this just shows it. Um, and it's, it's just a way of just saying um, these things, they, they do matter, though, um, and they are important. And I, and I think it's just everyone just wants their first peek at the baby, though. Uh, we often hear this little sidebar here, I have to ask you, uh, being the expert that you are, we hear um, uh, rumors that uh, that there's issues between Will and Kate and Harry and, and Meghan or, or Kate and Meghan. Is there, is there any validity to any of that stuff? Well, there certainly has been tension between the two brothers. I, I don't think there's, there's any doubt about that. Um, and look... And what's that in regard to? Well... People have been dancing around it, but I think it's simply they're, you know, they're both now married. They're both kind of going each other's different ways, whereas, you know, it was always William and Harry, and then it was William and Kate and Harry, and they were just this tight thing. But now that you've got, you know, they're fully set up with their own families, they're, they're just going their own ways. And anyone who's in a big family, I come from a big family, no, this always happens. Um, and so we just kind of, I think they're going to work through it. And I think distance is probably a good thing right now. I mean... Harry and Meghan are at, uh, at Windsor, at the Windsor State, and Will and Kate are based now at Kensington Palace. And they, they're simply, they're different people, and they have different futures. I mean, William's going to be a king, and Harry is not. I mean, Harry is now sixth in line to the throne, and we'll just keep dropping. Is one couple more popular than the other? Is, is Harry and Meghan more popular than Will and Kate? I think right now, Harry and Meghan are the superstars. I mean, around the world, they are the superstars. But that's simply because they're a brand new couple. They haven't even celebrated their first wedding anniversary. They had a huge tour in um, Southeast Asia. And so they are right now just on fire. They have this huge spotlight. But again, you look back, look back one generation, it was Andrew and Fergie versus Charles and Di. Remember that? And if you look forward for another 30 years, how things have changed, right? And so right now, this is why I think they wanted to have it so such a private delivery, because they know the whole world's attention is on them. They know the world just wants to, to take part in something that is just joyous. I mean, let's face it. You're looking at the news. You're looking at your Twitter feed. You're looking at Facebook. The news is not that great. This is a lovely, happy little story. Patricia Treble's been with us. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's a boy. Uh, the Royals have had their baby uh, coming uh, our time, about 1230 uh, this afternoon, our time. And uh, seven pound, 13 ounces, I believe, uh, boy, and all healthy and happy. All, all is good in the world. And now the big predictions as to what the name will be. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, principal, Alyssa Freeman, PR. She's with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you know, I love talking Royals. Do you really? I wasn't sure if you would or not. I know, because I saw your name on the list for this. It's like, really? I'd rather talk about uh, politics with Alyssa Freeman. What are you talking about? Juicy stuff. So is this couple, Meghan and Harry, more popular than Will and Kate? For a hot minute, Scott. That's it. That's all. You know, listen, I don't think Megan is one of the favorites of the royal family. I'll tell you that much. I mean, you know, they got kicked out of Kensington Palace, so to speak. And banished to Frogmore Cottage, and whoa, 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 whoa! What's all this? Di- what's all this royal dirt? Oh, please! Don't you read the Daily Mail? No, <laughs> no, I don't. 
And I apologize for that deeply. But no, I was talking about it uh, to our royal watcher earlier about, you know, is there this, is it true that there's some sort of spat going on between the two couples? And what did she, I was listening to her, but I didn't hear and, that answer. No, what did she say? She said that, yeah, there is tension there. And She's 100% correct. Yeah, but I guess they're trying to downplay it because, you know, it was obviously sort of a, a cohesive unit. Now I think uh, Harry and Meghan want to do their own thing, right? They just, yeah, we don't have to put up with this, so uh, we're well, not getting any thrown out of it, so we're, we're going to lead our own lives. I don't think there's much of a choice. I mean, I know that she had the baby today. They're announcing the baby today. I'm not so sure she had the baby today. Um, what do you mean? I don't know. I think that that baby already came a few days ago. I mean, there's also, Scott, also a very strong underground current of people who don't believe that she even birthed a baby, that she was all pillowgate. They call it pillowgate. Oh, come on. Oh, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Now I'm you're going to tell me they switched the baby and she's going to have a white baby. I'm going to make this interview very interesting for you. Go ahead. <laughs> so what, what, do you, what is this dirt you're hearing? I don't think that um, Meghan is in full favor, obviously, of the royal family. And I think there are many people in London who felt that she was a, you know, a social climber who happened to hit some of the highest heights. So, uh, you know. Yeah, but you could say that about anybody that marries into the royal family. Well, I guess you could. But you know what? You need to play the game. So, for example, if you're pregnant and you're at your... I don't know what it would be. It was at uh, Andrew's. I think it was um, Beatrice's wedding. Was it Beatrice or Eugenie that got married? Yeah. Anyways, it was at one of the girls' weddings when she let it slip, quote-unquote, that she was pregnant. Right. I mean, protocol, any sort of decent protocol would say, don't upstage the bride. Yeah. So I don't know if, I think that there is a lot of tension there between her and Kate. Yeah, I think that Megan would like to think that she is a princess, but she's not a princess. I mean, she is, but, you know, she'll always have to walk behind Kate. Um, she'll never get top billing, so to speak. And this tension has resulted in them being not living in, um, not living in Kensington Palace. And the reason that there were so many doubters as to whether she was truly pregnant or not is that didn't give birth in the royal hospital. Didn't use the royal OG, uh, you know, OGBYN, um, flouting complete protocol. Uh, it's um, wow. I think it's a mystery to many people. So, you know, the answer to your question: Are they more popular than you know Kate and Will's mm, today? Don't you but, think uh, that this couple is keeping the royals relevant, though, by being so hip, by being so cutting edge, by blazing the trail? I think that's a great question, and I think that that was the original intent. You know, how do you keep the royals fresh and relevant to a generation that isn't necessarily that enamored uh, with the royals and are not too crazy about the public purse, which means that they are given an annual stipend uh, by doing their PR duties for the palace, and taxpayers pay for that money. So, you know, what are they really paying for? And many people question that. And I think that by having an American starlet... Uh, joining the family, you know, especially one of uh, mixed race was something to show that they were forward thinking, that, you know, they were trying to appeal to a uh, younger generation, um, you know, than what we have known. Well, sure, because even when Will and Kate came onto the scene, it was like, wow, they were the new generation. They were the young, hip kids. They sort of make uh, uh, Harry and Meghan kind of make Will and Kate look like uh, middle-aged people now. Well, well, okay, no, but <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I mean, they are a little bit older. I mean, well, just a second. I mean, how old is Megan? Megan's in her late thirties. Yeah. And how old is Kate? I mean, I would have to quickly look that up. So I don't know. I just think that they started earlier. I think is all right. But you know, William is the is going to be king. In fact, you know, I think the queen is trying to live long enough so that Charles will never be king. <laughs> and it will, and it may, and there's even some talk that it will bypass, and it will go straight to William. All right. So, uh, all in all, a good day for the UK. They've all got to be pretty happy, no? Oh, I think so. I think that you know, I heard that you know, crowds are starting to uh, gather around. Um, you know, I know that um, uh, Harry made his statement, but I don't know if they were going to show off the baby at all. Um, they say maybe by Wednesday. Yeah, and then as your um, previous expert who was on uh, said that uh, Camilla and Charles are going to a, special, a very important exhibit in Germany 
tomorrow. So I'm thinking, okay, well, all right, that's odd that some grandparents would decide to leave sure. the country and then go then then go see the baby. But you know what? Maybe that's the royal, way the royals work. All right, Alyssa Freeman's been with us, public relations consultant, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much for the time, whether it's politics or royalty. Well, don't forget me for royalty, okay? All right, thank you. <laughs> much appreciated. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, now uh, we're finding out that Robert Mueller will testify. Uh, mind you, I'm still getting tentative. You know, I heard over the weekend that he will, and now we're saying possibly on uh, May 15th. Uh, the president has uh, said in the past that um, you know he was uh, pretty much neutral on this. It was up to Barr on on. on um, on whether he should testify, and uh, he he didn't appear to stand in the way. Although now it appears that the president does not want uh, Bob Mueller to testify, and tweeted so over the weekend, saying Bob Mueller should not uh, testify. Um, that uh, you know uh, there are no more redos for the Dems. To talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and he is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. The fact that Donald Trump tweets that Bob Mueller should not testify, does that not make the American people even want to hear from Bob Mueller even more? Yeah, I don't doubt it would. I think you're absolutely right. The The best course of action, especially for Donald Trump, since, as he's argued for quite a bit, he believes he's completely in the clear, is to allow Bob Mueller to testify. And you're right, as of right now, it seems to be tentatively scheduled for May 15th, although that obviously could change, anything is possible. But using the argument that it's been set up for the most part, I think he should just let him speak, let him discuss things the way he wishes. Obviously, there will be some contradiction between Mr. Mueller's testimony and the previous testimony by Attorney General Bob Barr. I think we've understood that, and we sort of get it based on the fact that last week it was sort of leaked out a little bit that Mueller supposedly did not agree with the interpretation that the Attorney General Barr had done in his four-page letter sort of trying to summarize the entire, I believe it's 448-page Mueller Commission report. So for, for Donald Trump and obviously for senior White House staffers, they're going to get things in that are going to be very different than the current narrative they're operating with. They'll be frustrated by some things. They'll have to speak out about others. And I'm sure there'll be lots of late-night talk shows discussing it. There'll be lots of interviews on Fox News, CNN, and elsewhere but at the same time, the fact that Donald Trump says there's no need or should, that Mueller should not testify will just make people more suspicious. Obviously, those who like Donald Trump will not be bothered one way or the other by what he says. He could say Mueller should testify or shouldn't testify. They'll agree with him. But for those who are opposed to Trump, this will just give them a little bit of further edge or credence in their argument that Trump knows something that the general populace and the Mueller report hasn't acknowledged as of yet. Whether that's true or not is another thing, but the illusion is there. Even for those who buy into Trump, and and again, like you said, it depends on which side of the fence you're on here, but even for those that do buy into, uh, you know, uh, Camp Trump, um, two years of, of investigation, all kinds of money, uh, the report is eventually released. As you said, it's over 400 pages. We get about four from the attorney general. Right. How can anyone think, even Donald Trump, that, yeah, okay, we're fine with that? I mean, people have been sitting on the edge of their seat waiting for this thing for two years. Why would we not want to hear from the guy that wrote it? Well, because most of the focus was on the first volume, which dealt with collusion. There were two components, as we know. We don't have to go through the whole Mueller report, because I'm sure you've parsed through it, and you and I have parsed through it as well. But the Mueller report had two components. One was discussion of collusion, possible collusion with Russia, which was discovered to have no links. And I know everyone is trying to make these little tiny interpretations based on these small sentences and paragraphs that don't necessarily link to it. But having read the entire document, and I did so, I can tell you that collusion is clearly not there. I think if Donald Trump wants to make the argument that he is free from any sort of allegation of collusion with Russia, I think he can make it fairly confidently. Where he can't is book two, and that deals with obstruction of justice. And that is basically 
Robert Mueller and his senior advisors' interpretation of 10 potential separate events, which they claim could sort of fit under the theory of obstruction of justice. That's the thing that's sort of sitting out there quite a bit, and one assumes that if Robert Mueller does testify on May the 15th, that's what he'll spend the majority of his time on, because there's really no argument to be made with collusion. And even though we understand that collusion is not a legal term in any sense, <clears throat> that's actually clearly stated in the Mueller report, that's what basically Mr. Trump and people in the White House have focused on, because that's what the media primarily focused on, was collusion. And that's what he's going to keep pushing and pushing away at this year and well into next year for the presidential election. What he doesn't want is a competing narrative where obstruction of justice, <clears throat> which is quite frankly a personal interpretation of the law rather than a set criminal act, so to speak. It's the way that Mr. Mueller and his advisors looked at certain instances that Donald Trump tried to do in terms of, say, firing, you know, uh, allegations of firing James Comey right. or trying to get Michael Flynn a better deal. I guess the big question is here, Michael, though, if there if there was no collusion and there ever and there never was any collusion, right. why would there be an obstruction of justice? You're cut. So you're, you're trying to cover up something that didn't happen. You know, again, well, I know no, no, I know they're two totally separate issues. Separate here. And, yeah. Yeah. Separate facts. That's the problem. But you know, and, and that's why the that's why it can continue. Everyone, there are some people, and I've actually seen it in some articles in the media, which is an enormous mistake, where they're tying together the two concepts. They're not. Collusion with Russia and obstruction with justice are completely separate components. Obstruction of justice actually so I guess my point is ramification. I guess my point is, why is he, uh, why is there the assumption of, uh, of obstruction of justice what was he uh, obstructing? He was restruct. He wasn't he obstructing um, items related to the investigation on collusion. Well, not really, because remember the collusion component specifically dealt with Russia. What we have found, and the FBI, the CIA, and other organizations have stated this, and have stated this actually for close to two years, is that there was no direct tie between the Trump White House or any other American yes. unrelated to the Trump White House mm -hmm. to some sort of Russian interference. There's no question that the Russians tried to interfere in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. That's understood. But what the Mueller report was trying to see is if there was any sort right. of string that drew from one end to the other right. that the FBI, the CIA, and others had not seen. And clearly there was nothing. So to put obstruction of justice as a tie-in or some sort of a lead-in through collusion, no. The obstruction of justice basically deals with Donald Trump's handling of certain events not related to collusion, but related to his day-to-day -day operations as president and trying to protect his own people, fire others, and basically protect his own backside. And these were uncovered during the investigation into collusion. Well, you see, this is part of the problem. I guess we're going to go on a bit of a tangent on this. It really depends what if you feel that they're obstruction of justice or, as I wrote for a piece in the U.K., whether it's just basically the seedy nature of politics working yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who is in politics, including my old friend and boss Stephen Harper, are guilty of obstruction of justice. That would be preposterous to say of people on the right and people on the left. But certainly there are discussions and things that occur in politics that if the average person looked at it, they might sort of shake yeah. their head, scratch it a little yeah. bit and wonder what's, you know, what's really going on. Whereas in politics, quite frankly, even if it's, even if it doesn't see, it's not the best way to get from point A to point B, there's a lot of different discussions that happen behind the scenes, all perfectly legal. But if the outsider might sort of look at it and say, well, God, is that really the way things operate day-to-day hmm. -day in politics? Canada, the U.S., the U.K., Germany, France, etc. And the answer is yes, and that's part of the problem. One man's obstruction of justice may simply be another man's day-to-day -day life in politics. So why does not, uh, uh, first of all, can Donald Trump stop Mueller from testifying? I think he's going to try. Um, he may not necessarily publicly point the finger very much and say, I'm going to do it. He might have tried to do it underneath, but it would be kind of difficult to do so. Um, it would be almost as if everyone is doing Trump's bidding, and 
they're not. The only people who are doing his bidding, quote-unquote, are the ones who are employed in the White House, his advisors, his staffers, etc. What the Congress chooses to do and who they choose to invite is completely up to them. Not only is that protected by the U.S. Constitution, it's just they're given right. If they want to invite someone, they have that right to do so. Now, Donald Trump has every right to object to it. He has every right to try to discourage them from inviting him. But no, he can't stop it. Um, how damaging is this other information in regard to obstruction of justice to the, the, the president, even though it's, it's totally separate from the collusion issue? How damaging is this other information? Obviously damaging enough, he doesn't want it out. It's, yeah, it, it's the latter. I mean, he doesn't want it out, but it's already out there. The question is, is there anything in there that we don't already know, Michael? No, no. There were, I mean, there were, there were certain lines and things that we did not know about, including the, the crude line that I can't really repeat on radio, right. when he apparently discovered that Robert Mueller was going to be the special counsel looking into this matter. He basically said he was, well, he used an expletive that ends with F and begins with F and ends right. with K and has ED on it, right. because he felt that, you know, this is the end of my presidency. But there are two interpretations of it. Anyone who dislikes Trump will interpret that as being, oh, Donald Trump admitted right there and then to staffers that he's guilty, you know, he, he knows what, exactly what he's done, and he's going to be destroyed. However, others have suggested, and not just necessarily Trump loyalists, but people in the middle or people who are trying to look at it, I think, a little rationally, are also suggesting, and I'm sort of in the camp as well, I kind of accept it, that he may have looked at something like a special counsel as being something that would destroy his presidency. In other words, what he hoped to achieve. Because the cloud of darkness, which deals with the Mueller report and the Mueller commission, would be hovering him over him all the time, no matter what he did. So it served as a very large distraction. Now, I know some people might be saying, and some of your listeners might be saying, oh, whatever. I mean, how can you interpret that? If you look back at the last, let's say, close to three years of Donald Trump speaking to the media, and the number of times that he has meant to say something in one way, shape, or fashion, but it comes out entirely different, either due to you know a poor construction of language, a bad speech, a bad break from one sentence or one paragraph to another, it's not unusual for Donald Trump to say one thing but not necessarily exactly mean exactly what he said. He's just unfortunately not as articulate a speaker as others have been who have held the same high office as him, which is the U.S. presidency. Some presidents are obviously very good orators in the past, like Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, and they were able to communicate their message to the people, to the media, to others in extremely easy-to-understand fashion that no one would confuse. Donald Trump speaks in riddles, and sometimes the riddles are impossible to answer. Hmm. And for that reason, it is entirely plausible that Trump simply meant, God, everything that I've worked for is going to be destroyed in a heartbeat because of this council being formed and Robert Mueller overseeing it. So that's part of the thing. He doesn't want to have to keep opening this jar over and over again because, one, it's already been opened, and, two, he's probably tired of talking about this issue at all because he believes that he has been completely vindicated, which isn't entirely true if you read the report. He doesn't want. He obviously wants to emphasize collusion over obstruction of justice because that's his political advantage, and it's just a mess for him. It's just that it will serve again as another distraction away from well, things that he wants, hopes, or wishes to finish off before the 2020 presidential election is in the books. Uh, all this started with the supposed bromance between Putin and Trump. Uh, right. A phone call over the weekend. Uh, Trump said, you know, he, he got the impression that uh, that Putin was smiling and the, the conversation was cordial. And yeah. then uh, Trump got flack for, for not bringing up interfering with the election. How can you go through all this and then have a conversation with Putin and not bring up, oh yeah, by the way, don't interfere with our election this time? Well, I mean, I guess the first question is, I don't know how Donald Trump noted that he was smiling when they were on a phone call. That's oh, been asked, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unless it was a video chat or Skype, I really don't think <laughs> Maybe it was a Skype. You never know. Maybe. Who knows? It is known that some presidents do video chat with others, but I don't think that's what they implied here. Putting that aside, <laughs> which is difficult, I know, but let's move to the next part. Um, how could you not discuss it? 
Well, I mean, again, it depends on which side of the fence you're on. If you hate the president, you'll say, well, that it was obvious that he's Putin's puppet. He's not going to bring up issues like that. And besides which, when Vladimir decides that he wants to pull the strings, he'll do it when he feels like. That's how some people look at it. The other part may be that Donald Trump may have brought it up with him. He may have discussed it with him in private. There may have been heated discussions. We just don't know. But none of that is coming out. We just don't know exactly what the relationship between the two men is like. I mean, do I believe that Trump is Putin's puppet? Absolutely not. I really don't. Do I think that he's trying to build a cordial relationship with Vladimir Putin, that being Donald Trump? Yes, I absolutely do. Do I think there's enormous risk in doing that? Without question, there's a huge risk, not just for the United States and Russia or, and their relations, but for the world in general. And do I think that Donald Trump plays games, unfortunately, with other types of totalitarian leaders, dictators, whatever you wish to call them, that could put the U.S. in a lot of jeopardy? Without question. There's no doubt of that. And you don't have to be a small-c conservative like myself to even understand the risk you take to deal with Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, and others in a cordial manner. But this is what he's chosen to do. In terms of what was discussed in that conversation, well, I doubt we'll ever know, Scott, unless someone was sitting there recording it and brings it out at some point at a later date. But for now, we can just assume that they had some sort of a conversation. Some of the things have been released publicly, but I would bet dollars to donuts that a lot of it privately will never be released. And that issue may have been one of the things they discussed. But again, considering he's trying to sell no collusion, the optics here are, are bizarre. And, you know, and as uh, and we all know this is politics, but as Chuck Schumer uh, tweets for a man who constantly proclaims his innocence, he's acting awfully guilty. And I mean, again, by picking up the phone and talking to Putin and not having some sort of proper press release as to what was, you know, something to put people's minds at ease, mm-hmm. it's just, it just seems bizarre. And, and again, for a guy who is so innocent, why does he constantly shoot himself in the foot with a guilty gun? Well, sure. Look, not to use Chuck Schumer as a, as a creature of objection. No, not by but- any means. Yeah, no, I mean, he's really, he's exceedingly partisan, not just because he's wildly left-wing, he just is. Um, yes, I agree with you that certainly conversations with someone like Vladimir Putin should at least be, there should be some sort of a press release or something to express, you know, that they are going to have this discussion, that these topics may be, you know, broached during the conversation, the length of the call, whatever, so that at least it looks a little bit more open and honest. At the same time, Donald Trump, like any world leader, has to deal with other world leaders. Vladimir Putin, you know, runs a major country, not the superpower it once was as the old Soviet Union, but no one is going to say that Russia is weak. So obviously, the United States has to deal with them. The same way that Donald Trump, during the course of a day, week, month, year, deals with a lot of different world leaders on a variety of issues. Some so how significant will others not? How significant will May 15th be then, Michael? It depends. It depends what we hear. If it's more of the same, probably not at all other than CNN having breaking 24/7 news every god every <laughs> week of the day. That's all they do. Like it's come to a point, I think you and I have even discussed this yep. as well. I I certainly have with others that after a while, 24-7 or breaking news, it doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, it's meaningless. It meant something when something was breaking and was important. Now all you do is you look at the ticker down below, and there it is. Anyway, but with the exception of CNN, MSNBC, and others that will obviously push it to high heaven, I think that most Americans will probably look at it, listen to it, you know, watch it on TV, listen to the radio, read it in the newspapers, and I don't think it's going to go very far because the Mueller report's verdict is out, whether you agree with it or not, it is out. And unless Robert Mueller has some sort of a bombshell that really, to be perfectly frank with you, Scott, should have been put in the report to begin with and should not be presented in front of a committee, I don't really know if it's going to do much of anything other than irritate the president and his advisors for a few days and just, you know, give the mm. cable, t- cable news and cable TV show something to talk about for, let's say, three to seven days. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, the Kentucky Der- uh, the Kentucky Derby is over, uh, but the controversy remains. Uh, over the weekend, uh, one of the horses, Maxim Security, apparently after winning, was disqualified. The second place horse, uh, Country House, took the prize, while the Derby got a social media commentary from the president as well. Uh, did they rule the right way? Uh, how do you how do you judge such uh, a maneuver and such a race when things are uh, in the heat of battle the way they are on a horse race track? Uh, to talk more about all of this, John uh, Jonathan Littner is with us, editor at Horse Racing Nation, and is with us now. Jonathan, thanks for the time, much appreciated. Well, I, I've done a few of these today. It seems uh, more than you guys are curious about what happened on Saturday. I can imagine how many of these you've done. When you were watching, and I, I must confess, I did not watch the race. Uh, I've seen the clips uh, uh, afterwards of, of the horse apparently leaving its leg, uh, leaving its lane. But when you were watching this horse race, Jonathan, did you notice anything out of the ordinary while you were watching it as an expert? I, I did not, um, and, and I think it's totally up to whether you watched it on, say, the Churchill Downs track feed or you watched it on NBC. Um, I was in the press room and, and kind of had access to both, but I'm more looking at, you know, at that point in the race, it, it was sort of this weird juncture where, where NBC, which, which had it on here, you know, they go from one camera shot to another, and it, it's not until after the race that you go back and they show you one consistent shot that you see that it did come so far off the rail. Um, I, I was surprised when they said there was a writer's objection, but then certainly uh, going back and seeing the replay, it, it makes complete sense why they had to take a closer look at that. I don't know why it took them 22 minutes to take a closer look at that. Uh, that's a, a whole different story. So tell us, uh, for those that didn't see it, how this all played out. Uh, you said it took 20, 22 minutes to, to, to make this final, to make this decision official. Uh, tell us how it all played out right from the finish of the race. Yeah, so the, the the winner crosses the wire, and then it's up to if there, a rider wants to make an objection, basically calling their own fouls. They can tell the outrider who's on a, like a pony horse that catches them after the race. They can mm-hmm. tell them to alert the stewards, you know, we've got to hold this thing up. And the stewards themselves, they, there's three people who essentially are, are tasked with officiating the race. The stewards can post their own inquiry. Um, they didn't in this case, and it's a little unclear because they, they didn't, say anything to the media after the race, whether they were going to take their own look at it. The interesting thing about the Derby, you know, you've got a 20 horse field. Um, it was run in the rain over a sloppy track on Saturday. The Derby is sort of seen as this anything goes race just because of the size of the field and the close quarters that it puts everybody in. And it's, you know, so long as everybody's standing up when they get back around, it's not really scrutinized like the third race at Woodbine. So you kind of had that element to it as well that, you know, would they swallow their whistles and, and actually make a decision? And um, the interesting thing is that, that when maximum security veered off the rail uh, near the top of the stretch, they were, they were just leaving the turn. He bumped two rivals, but did not really impede or, or do anything to hold back the horse that was eventually placed first in the race. So I think a lot of people are having trouble with that result. Um, you know, it's almost as if they, they would prefer no winner and that's not really a plausible outcome because of how much money is bet on the race. The track, you, you know, you're betting against your peers. You're not betting against the track. So they've got to pay the money out. They've got to declare a winner. And that's just the, the way of American race officiating works. They, they ended up placing maximum security. I think he was a one and three fourth lengths clear at the wire, but he ends up 17th in the official running order wow. behind the horse that he impeded. So, in order for this whole protest to start, it starts with another rider. In this case, it did, but it can also start with the stewards themselves. Um, that there's just either two ways, and uh, inquiries and objections are, are, are not too common. Um, they're definitely not common in the Kentucky Derby. Like I said, you know, it, it's kind of viewed as an anything goes race, and there's been different reaction to it. You know, Bob Baffert, who's won the Derby five times, he had the Derby favorite on Saturday, and improbable. He his reaction when he, he was interviewed about it, he said, you know what, don't take a close look at it. It's the Derby. But then Todd Pletcher, who is probably America's other top trainer, he, he commended the officials for having the integrity to, to do it on that 
sort of stage to overturn such a, a big race and make that decision. He said it was good for the integrity of the sport. So you can really go about it both ways. What happens in that 22 minutes after the first horse crosses the finish line and the official winner is declared? How did that all come about? Uh, so, it, I mean, there, it was a frantic scene on the track. You know, you, you have the connections of the horse that crossed the, the, the line first. They think they've won the race. And I, I thought there was a slim chance it got overturned, um, kind of going back to what Baffert said. You just don't do that in the Derby. Uh, this was the first overturn of, of a Derby or a disqualification for something that happened on the track ever, and they've run it 145 times. Um, but stewards are in their booth. Uh, they're, they're high above the track. There's three of them. They've got all kinds of camera angles, and they, they review everything, and they they came to consensus. They only, it only has to be a two to one vote, but in this case, all three of them said they agreed that to make that change. And uh, when they did, you know, uh, uh, one group of people had to leave the winner's circle, and another group of people walked in there. And uh, how bizarre! Uh, how bizarre <laughs> is that to have that happen at this prestigious race? I I mean, it's the, one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen on a racetrack. I, I mean, I like to say that that horse racing is such a unique sport. I mean, for for doing the same thing over and over horses running in circles you get so many results and so many stories and so many wacky things happen it's, it's a great sport to cover um but this this uh it topped it all for me so so how um explain to someone who doesn't know anything about horse racing what this horse what this rider did wrong so in in horse racing if you are the leader and you don't have any horses beside you, you're, you're welcome to veer in and out, take different paths, do whatever you want. It's when a horse comes up and you would be impeding them by moving that it becomes an issue. And, and that was what the stewards ruled on Saturday is that, that you know, he came out, maximum security did, into other horses. And, and obviously that's a, that's a major safety issue because if horses clip heels, meaning that yeah. you know, their legs make contact and they go down, I mean, that, that's a potential fatal situation. So for this to happen you know it definitely drives home to, to the jockey every day running at any other track that you know you can't do this and get away with it it's really it's one of those things that the, the rules are this harsh because the consequences are so high even beyond the results of the race so how does this happen jonathan is this the rider is this the jockey is this the horse freaking out how does this happen that's what we're still trying to process. Um, there's been a, a lot of theories behind it. Um, initially, the Luis Saez, who, who rode maximum security, he suggested that, that it was maybe crowd noise that the horse shied away from. Um, you know, you've got a, a large infield crowd, and that right where they were on the track is where you start to get within shouting distance of, of the front stretch and the grandstand. You know, there were 150,000 people at the Derby on Saturday, so it gets pretty loud, and it's a new experience for every horse in the race. They all re- react a little bit differently. Um, you know, there's everything from that to the conspiracy of, of a photographer who was standing near the pole and might have been using flash photography. Um, I just spoke to the, the racing manager of, of Maximum Security, um, Ben Glass. He works for, for Gary and Mary West. They own and, and bred the horse. And there's even some suggestion, if you go back and, and look at the race from the NBC perspective, that one of the horses that War of Will eventually, or that uh, Maximum Security eventually impeded, his name is War of Will. That, that maybe he was running up too close behind maximum security and that they may have clipped heels and that's what caused him to come out. And, and that's going to be a question. The owners are looking to appeal it. Um, this thing might not be over as crazy as that sounds, you know, that the owners are trying to get this re overturned, I, I guess you, you would call it. And uh, they, they want to go look at the, the film later this week with the stewards when they get back to work on Thursday. Does it matter why the horse drifted into the other lane? Uh, is that, can, can this be overruled now? I would think the only instance for why it would matter is if another horse caused him to do it. You know, I think they, if they rule that this war of will horse did get into maximum security, kind of spooked him you know it's like if you're driving down the road and at a pretty high rate of speed and there's a car behind you even though that car doesn't touch you you're like you know what's this guy doing or get right. off my tail like it's going to change how you drive and i think that's 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 probably the case that uh, the maximum security camp is going to make but if the horse for any other reason does it you know it's up to the jockey to control the horse and nobody's blaming the jockey in this case uh you know these are young horses they're still relatively inexperienced that's 
what makes the derby what it is and uh yeah there there's really no no forgiveness so nobody's that. nobody's accusing the jockey of being careless or in, in any way like that no no if you watch it or if you see the photos i mean he's got a pretty tight rein where he, he's trying to get the horse back on the rail and he did i mean the, the horse ran a huge race i mean that's, that's what a lot of people I think are overlooking it. I mean, maximum security, he started his career as a $16,000 claiming horse because the owners and the trainer did not think much of him. And he just ran lights out on Saturday. And aside from that, he looked like a legitimate triple crown prospect. Uh, it's a bit of a shame that he won't get to go onto the Preakness stakes in a couple of weeks and, and try to prove that. But he, he ran a huge race. And, and yeah, you can't really put the blame for what happened on the jockey. They're, they're young horses and things happen. Uh, could this be overturned again? It could be. I mean, I, you know, after after seeing that on Saturday, I, I don't want to say that anything is impossible uh, in the case of this race. Um, the, the The problem is, is if it doesn't get overturned really soon, it doesn't make too much of a difference. You're talking about, you know, Gary West and and, and Mary, his wife. Um, you know, I think I'm pretty sure they're billionaires. You know, they don't need the money; mm. they like the trophy. But you sort of lose the moment anyway. That the real key. I think for fans and people who follow the sport is, can they get this settled in time for them to think about running into Preakness stakes if they are going to overturn it? Uh, what about the president even commenting on this? Well, I mean, what, what about the president commenting on anything? <laughs> <laughs> it's the Kentucky Derby. It's politics. It's North Korea. It doesn't hey, matter. It's, it's, good. it's good for my business. If he yeah. wants to get that many more people talking about the Kentucky Derby, um, I just wish he would have spelled Kentucky correctly. <laughs> oh, man. Um, what about the second place horse? What about the horse that wins in all of this? I mean, do they have to be apologetic about this? How, how do you feel if, you, if you're the horse that, that, that is declared the winner? Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you cover the Derby, uh, and it was funny, we were still in the press room at like 11.30 on Saturday. you got to go out and see the winner the next morning at, at 7 in the morning and uh, talk to the trainers. So that's a, a fun little turnaround. But, yeah, the, the, the trainer of that horse, Country House, who was, was placed the winner was Bill Mott. He's a Hall of Famer. He had won everything but the Derby, essentially. That was what was missing on his resume. And it's, you know, he kind of said, I hate, that I have to apologize for winning this, but I'm glad they ended up putting our number up there. And uh, it's it's definitely been different. You know, they, they trainers always say, or, or owners, anybody like that, they say that winning the Derby is this kind of like out-of-body experience. And, uh, you know, it's kind of unfortunate they didn't get to have that in a traditional sense. But I don't think there's anybody out there who says that, that Bill Mott is not deserving of winning the Kentucky Derby. It's just uh, strange how it came about. So how does this change the betting? I mean, obviously, this is something that is bet on. How does something like this throw a, a stick into the wheel of all that? Yeah, I mean, Maximum Security, he went off as the second choice in the race at 9-2. to two. Country House was 65-1. to one. He ended up being the second highest priced Kentucky Derby winner ever. Hmm. Um, the, the track takes the wagers paramutually you're, you're betting against your peers and that's how the odds are determined uh you don't get fixed odds when you bet obviously they, they change as, as more money comes in so yeah the, the i mean the track still pays out all the money it's just fewer people got more money as opposed to uh, a lot of people getting a little bit less with with maximum security winning uh obviously this has drawn a lot of attention a lot of attention to the sport and to the derby what what can derby officials learn from all of this what can horse racing learn from all of this i think it's just too soon to say um the tv ratings it was they said the uh the highest or matched the highest rated kentucky derby um since 1990 so obviously people are interested and people are talking i think if anything um yeah, the biggest complaint about racing consistently from people inside of it in America is that there's just no consistency. Um, every state has their own racing commission, all their different racing officials. The rules are different here and there. And that could even come down to a steward's ruling and, and how that's conducted. And I think that outside of the Derby, even on a broader scale, um, it's about time that racing gets some sort of central office. And, and you know, that's why people are there. They're, they're contacting me. Well, it should be somebody in racing who speaks up and says, okay, this is how stewards work. This is how the rulings work because that's how it is in every other sport. Uh, you know, it's on paper. It's in one place. You know how major league baseball review works. You know how the NFL review works, even if you might disagree with some of those calls, but at least people know where to get that information. Um, horse racing, 
you know, and, and maybe that's just, I don't know, maybe that's just how the sport's always going to be, but it just kind of feels like this Wild West mentality of, you know, we'll let people figure it out. But when it's their hard-earned money that, that's being wagered on the sport, I think that they deserve a little bit better. Uh, asking this question again, when you were watching the race the f- for the first time, did you see this? Did you notice it was happening? No, I, I mean, I'm in a different situation. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to but follow did, I, I guess my other, um, my other comment, would other people in the stands have noticed this? I don't think so. No. I, it was hard to catch. Right. Um, I mean, he came out a little bit, but again, I, I keep coming back to it. It's the Kentucky Derby. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm surprised that the, the Stewarts even gave it that much time. But that said, it was within the rules. It was the correct call. Um, so in but, your opinion, did they make the right call here? Did this, did this play out the way it should have? I, I guess I have to say yes. Um, I don't like that that's the correct call. Let me put it that way. Um, you know, I wish maximum security was the winner of the race, but he, because he was the best horse, but the best horse doesn't always win. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see if the losing connections can appeal. And, um, like I said, I've been talking to them about this, this other angle of, you know, what if it was this war of will that, that made contact with him and made him veer out into the other horses. I think that completely changes the, the ruling and, and the way they'll have to look at it. So it's, it's definitely a stay tuned situation. Were there other riders who, uh, who who brought this up, or was it just one? There were two of them. Right. Um, so the, the jockey of Country House, who, like I said earlier, he wasn't really impeded, but he came back, and the other jockeys were like, hey, you should you know, lodge an objection because I saw this happen. Yeah. You know, it kind of happened to his inside. But one of the horses that really got taken out from all this any shot to win was with long-range toddy and he was one outside of war, war of will and his jockey lodged an objection so even if the horse you know that's what kind of what people are saying well the the guy who ended up winning the race put the objection up that didn't even affect him but there was another horse that got affected and mm-hmm. that's the one that maximum security ended up behind so the the objection did matter will there any will there be anything that, j- that the jockey or jockeys can learn from this um, no, I mean, just that they're going to enforce the rules. I, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's pretty sternly drilled into their heads that there are millions and millions of people watching this and you need to keep the horses safe and you need to keep each other safe. Yeah. Um, I just think this was a, a little bit of unfortunate incident. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it a matter of inches and, and probably feet really matter of feet, um, between maximum security, just running on and being a, a big derby winner. And, I. You know, it's it's good for the sport that we're still talking about it, but it's also bad that the best horse didn't get to win. Hmm. Jonathan Littner has been with us, editor at Horse Racing Nation, talking about this year's edition of the Kentucky Derby and the disqualification of maximum security. Jonathan, thanks so much for the time and insight. I know you've been busy. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for taking the time and uh, talking about racing. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.